welcome to the XY Advisor podcast. To join a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. Both Zurich and OnePath life insurance offerings deliver the broadest range of offerings in the market with a combined four distinct solutions on offer to better serve all Australians. At Zurich and OnePath, we believe in the value of advice and the professionals who provide it. This means investing in more ways to help your clients and making it easier for you to do business with us. To find out more about how we can help you and your clients, contact your Zurich and OnePath life or Zurich Investments representative today. G'day, g'day, how's it going? What do you know? Strike a like, Clayton here from XY Advisor, chatting with Maria, who's the head of mental health and wellness at One Path in Zurich. Thanks so much for coming on. Awesome to be here. Thanks for having me, Clayton. Hello, yes. everyone. Yeah, it's been a, a really cool series to do. I personally have learned a lot. This has been a really big topic. You know, I guess it's not so much taboo these days, but uh, it's still, I needed to sort of walk into it with a little bit more professionalism um, than probably how I approach most, you know, series. This this came with a certain weight to it that I, I didn't want to mess around with because of how important it is. Uh, in financial planning, we've had 12 or so uh, reported at least uh, suicides from advisors. Uh, so I know it's a topic that advisors uh, are finding interesting. It's also you know, during my study for this uh, series, I also went back and read the APRA sort of why they stepped in in the first place to because, you know, the reinsurers were considering leaving the country essentially. So um, it's, there's been some big, big things come about from this. And so I couldn't sort of just walk in as lots of daisy as I normally do. I really, and, and um, this has been a, a, an amazing series of some phenomenal speakers around the world. And to have someone in the industry as experienced as you to help wrap it up is really cool. So, um, so I was thinking maybe we could just start with um, a little bit about what you, what you see as your role because it's a very unique role in the industry. You don't really see this a lot. So how, how do you see um, your role within, within the industry? Yeah, I think that's a, a great summary and and you know, you really call on some important themes there. And I think some of what you've called on is the reason why the role is here and why I'm in this role. And I have been in this role. It'll be three years in October, in fact, Clayton. Uh, So if we sort of really think about this objectively and take a step back, you know, we, we are aware and we are learning more and more about the impact of mental illness in our community. And, you know, there's a lot of data and there's a lot of research out there that tells us that one in five people um, in our community will have a mental health condition this year and that one in two people will experience a form of um, mental health condition in their lifetime. So that in itself, if, if you think about that and you think about it as a life insurer, that, you know, those statistics are quite significant, okay? Uh, if we look within what we do as a life insurer, we protect people's lives, we protect their livelihoods, we're there for them when they can't work, we're there for them when they are 
um, due to an illness. We are there for them when they are unable to um, function due to an illness. And what we are seeing more and more is that mental illness is becoming that illness um, and that leading illness that is impacting the way people um, are able to function. And it's, and it's, it's, quite, it's, it's quite concerning. Um, and it's something that, you know, from a, a trends perspective, we're looking at trends, it's something that isn't, um, we're certainly not flattening the curve there. Um, so as a life insurer and my role within the life insurance business and and, our, and and even you know you know I, I like to think that we work collaboratively as a life insurance industry is really what more can we be doing in terms of mental health solutions for customers um, in supporting advisors to support their clients um, for from a group insurance perspective um, you know so that we are ensuring that where we can assist people that are coming in on claim for a mental illness, that we are doing the best to, to support them in a caring, compassionate way and making that process quite easy for them. Um, from an underwriting perspective, from a product design perspective, um, you know, they're, they're, and, and, and from an advisor perspective, something that we're really keen to do and something we're currently working on is how do we provide tools resources and information to advisors mm. so that they can be that holistic advisor you know so this is what my role is about it's about um looking at the great work that we do across our business and we have some fantastic work that is done specifically and been able to support um the mental health of our customers from a preventative perspective from a claim perspective um and from a, a product perspective, but what more can we be doing to be able to support customers, the community advisors, um, given what we know as a life insurer and given how significant mental health is, um, you know, across, you know, across, across our, our community and across Australia and globally as well. Yeah, I could I could imagine when the actuaries were sitting down twenty years ago that they never priced in what we've seen occur. <laughs> it's, it always does blow my mind when I look at you could call it. I really like the way that you just referred to it as flattening the curve. It's somewhat of a pandemic, isn't it? In one mm. way or another, this uh, this mental health problem, and I I, I mean. There's so much to say about that as a topic that I'm yeah. just absolutely not even qualified to <laughs> go near. Um, but it is, it's obviously a, a, an interesting uh, thing. A couple of the things that I've learned along the way during the series is, A, advisors, I guess, will never be in a position to, to diagnose, and, or not so much to diagnose, but will never be in a position certainly to help someone that is below that average happiness line. So the way that it's been explained to me is people have sort of a, a medium um, feel, feeling of happiness that they consider normal. And then one in five people at any given stage and uh, in, in, in any given year will be on the negative side of that. And then psychology has worked to get people who are on the downside back up to medium. And then financial advisors, the better financial advisors who are working in this peak performance area, 
are working from how to get people from this medium as far up that scale as, as possible. And that, that to me was a really interesting concept that advisors definitely played better in that medium up rather than below to get back to medium. Um, however, the, another, one of the other guests walked me through a very simple concept and in as far as what uh, insurance companies can do to help advisors help their clients, I actually did come across something which I wanted to, to talk to you about, which is um, the concept of, and this is a real thing and I've never heard of it, it's a mental health first aid course. Mm. So uh, in the same way that you can do a pretty low-cost first aid course and, and have basic CPR skills, from what it was explained to me is that there is a basic uh, course that advisors can upskill to learn the basics and and essentially if if advisors as soon as we were to recognize someone was in that one in five and was able to refer to a psychologist in a in in a quick enough fashion or a more apt because personally, I never had a single psychologist. I never referred a, a single client to a psychologist in the history of my career. I would have thought that would have been crazy. But during this interview process, I learned that actually some advisors do that relatively frequently. And to me, that blew my mind. And then the conversation becomes, well, how do you have that comfort? Like, how do you have that in a way that you, you're not going to annoy your client? Right? That's obviously mm. the, the, the main goal. So I, I did come across this concept of, uh, of a mental health first aid uh, course, and I, I think that would be an amazing thing to, to, to explore with the, the industry and advisors. But I guess probably from your point of view, what do you, because you did mention it earlier, that uh, mental health claims are pretty much the most common style of claims these days, or there's certainly a, a huge majority. Um, what are some of the more common, I guess you could say, claims or experiences that advisors, insurance companies are having around claims? Yeah, look, I think that's a that's a great question. And if we look at it from an aggregated perspective, so if we look at it from a from an industry perspective, Clayton, um, in 2018. Uh, $750 million of claims, worth of claims, actually related to mental health. Yeah, wow. And then if you break that down, uh, 22% of the mental health claims accounted for TPD um, and DI combined um, from a group and a retail perspective. So it's 22% of those claims. If you think about mental health as a claim cause, um, it is a number one claim cause for TPD claims. So if I can just... That was for 2018. If I can just articulate that in terms of what that practically means. So that practically means that the number one reason a person was on claim for total and permanent disability was due to a mental illness, right? So, you know, we, we're talking about pandemics and we're talking about wow. um, the impact that we've seen of the pandemic recently in our community. Let's talk about that let's talk about mental illness and let's talk about the impact that it is having on individuals and how individuals are able to continue to remain healthy and and, and contribute um in a positive way 
to, yeah. to, to society, to their work, to their families. You know, tw- the leading cause of claim for TPD is mental, mental illness. If we look at disability income, it's number two. So it's wrapping up the top two, right? And then we look at, out of all of the claims that are paid, so in terms of, you know, sums insured um, at, at, across across the industry, out of all the claims that are paid, it's about a billion um, dollars, 12% is attributed to mental illness claims. So that is quite significant. Um, yeah. So if we, if we sort of think about that, often... You know, we have discussions and there's, there's, there's always the question, you know, is it a, a white collar? Is it really specific to, to white collar? You know, yeah. and, and is that what advisors should be aware of? Yeah, there's been a great, a great paper that recently came out. Um, it was a joint paper by the FSC and the KPMG and it was a research paper and it researched the impact of psychosocial factors um, on mental health and how that actually impacts life insurers. And there's a really... It's a, it's a significant paper. It's quite large. It's over 100 pages. But there are some really key points in there that I think are really interesting to call out here. And when we're talking about workplaces, depending on who you have as your clientele, so if you're an advisor that does have a lot of clients that are, you know, perhaps um, self-employed or perhaps they uh, do work in the white-collar professional services or blue-collar that will probably skew what you see from a claims perspective. Um, whereas if, if you have a, a more diverse um, group of clients, then generally the trends are really around the nature of the work. So it's really around that link between um, the quality of the management in the workplace, the effort and reward balance, um, you know, whether the workplace is a workplace where the, the demands are quite high, but then, you know, the, the, the support and um, the organisational structures that um, kind of nurture and um, provide guidance are weak could impact that as well. Um, if I take a step, a further step back and just think about when we look at our claims and our yep. book of claims, what are the key call-out biopsychosocial factors? So what are the factors that could be linked to, um, you know, factors outside of the actual um, diagnosis itself? What we're seeing our workplaces are the leading cause of claims. So whether that is workplace stress, bullying, burnout, um, whether it's, um, you know, there might be an element of some performance management there for, for a small number, um, whether it's, you know, that, 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 that idea that I just shared with you earlier around the, the support structures that are available within the workplace. We're seeing workplaces as a leading cause, right? Then you go down further and you see that things like relationships, um, financial stress, uh, grief, you know, caring for a sick child or an elderly parent, family history and alcohol and drug abuse come into it as well. So when you kind of take a step back and you look at those things, you know, the, the question that I often ask myself is, you know, is, are any of these pertinent to white collar or blue collar professions? It depends. It really depends, right? You could say, I worked in law. I worked in law for a number of years. You know, it was a very, very stressful environment extremely stressful but I really felt valued 
I felt like a valued member of, I felt valued by the firms that I worked for. Mm. I felt valued by the clients that I supported. And I just felt like, yeah, I worked hard, but I really felt valued. Yeah. Does that necessarily mean that every lawyer feels like that? Possibly not. Do they have that in every law firm they're working? Possibly not. So it's very hard to be, you know, very specific about it's white collar or not. But when we look at our book of business, um, historically, you know, it, it, we probably have a predominance of males, white collar, self-employed, mid-40s, burnout, um, breadwinner as the bucket of, you know, your, your, your typical um, claimant for an IP mental illness claim. Really? But that is reflective of our portfolio as well because that is huh. traditionally who would have acquired um, life insurance or, could, or who could have afforded to have acquired life insurance. If we did see, um, you know, the, the, on the blue-collar side, they were more accident-related claims, yes. you know, or, 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 or other factors. But I think that's kind of, you know, blurring a little now. I think it's sort of balancing out a little now. Um, and we are getting obviously more women that are breadwinners that, you know, are wanting to have life insurance to protect their, their family and, and obviously their livelihoods too. So that, that is going to change over time. So this is in relation to a point in time that is reflective of what that portfolio looked like. Um, it's also, I think it's probably worth noting um, that, you know, when we look at suicide in Australia, mm. three quarters of suicides are men. More women attempt suicide, but yeah. more men die from it. And you did talk about the, the statistics around advisor suicides. Mm. Um, I haven't been able to understand or get a, more information about those. And it, it is a very personal matter. And it's not something, obviously, that I'm wanting to delve at an individual level. I'm trying to understand if there's any geographical trends or anything that, you know, where, you know, we, we could provide support as an industry to people that are specifically impacted. Um, the numbers are. I think one is one is one too many is my personal view, um, but trying to validate those numbers has proven to be challenging. Just yes. in terms of trying to understand, you know, what what is it that that you know we can be doing to to provide support to to financial advisors? That's been the basis that I've tried to understand that further. We haven't been able to, as I said, validate that. But that aside, it is an issue. Um, it is a, a, a greater issue in men and we're seeing that in our community and that aligns with what we are seeing, you know, in, in terms of our claims as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the stats around the, the advisor suicides, as you've mentioned, have been very difficult to get a hold of. I've been, I've been asked a bunch of times if, if we have access to the, the research and we don't. I think it was sort of, it was a little bit hard and fast. I think it we, whichever journalist sort of came out and said that um, I don't think there's a lot of information behind it. So it is difficult to, to find out, but yeah, it's undoubtedly, um, it's undoubtedly a thing, uh, which is why I guess I, I wanted to give this um, series for the, the, the respect it deserves. Um, in terms of what, the industry sees or the insurance companies sees or Zurich One Path see in, in terms of rehabilitation because mm. uh, 
as you as you just mentioned, it's the number one claim for permanent disability, and it was number two for uh, income protection, so mm. temp- temporary disability. Um, I find that I guess it makes sense during during the process of this series. I've had a number of discussions, and essentially, what it is, it, if if mental health is a reason for even temporary disability, then if it's not taken care of, things get rapidly worse. So it's not, yeah. it, it, it kind of cascades from there. So my, and, and I guess, and it's a little bit controversial in this angle I've sort of taken with this series, but I like to, I like to look at things kind of rationally and excuse the, the emotional side later. But the way that I've kind of looked at it is, um, well, advisors have traditionally felt they've done their job by ensuring clients are well insured and successfully claimed. And so the role of the financial planner has seen themselves as the defender of their client in the worst case scenario. And I love that and it's true and I don't take that away. However, and it's, it's sort of, it's, this is a little bit of the controversial part, is that the best we can do? Is that our job? Um, and is that in the best interest of the client? Is the best interest of the client to have them get the most amount of money with the least amount of work? Is that the best interest of the client? Or is it the best interest of the client to go back to work and not get free money? That's, that's a huge sort of concept, um, but it's one that the way that I'm looking at what's going on, it's one that has to be had. It just, it's, it's, it's an unavoidable. When I was, when I was reading the, the, the APRA letters about forcing the whole industry to change because in the way that I've sort of used the term is the, the advisors, we, we broke the bank, you know, like the, we went in and we did such a good job that we were set out to achieve, but we did it too well. And, um, and so it wasn't sustainable and APRA had to come in. And I understand, like, after going back and reading the documents, it made more sense why those changes had to occur. Um, but it's also dawned on me if, if advisors are, are adopting a greater responsibility, a holistic view to, to their clients' wellness, we've traditionally seen our job as, being successful if the client gets the most amount of money and then they sit on the couch watching Netflix every day, right? I get it. And it's, we've, we've definitely done the job, but would we want that? Would we want that for our best mate, right? For our best friend, would we want them to get the most amount of money and sit on the couch every day? I don't know. I don't know. I, I kind of think I'd want them to get back out there. And that, that's my honest truth is that I'd want them to feel like they're contributing and I'd want them to feel like they had their moment to recover and, and, and there were things that were done to get them back out there. And I would be sad for my friend if they sat on the couch, whether they had a million dollars in their pocket or not, because I go, and not to say that money doesn't help. Money definitely helps. Like I'm not suggesting for one moment that money doesn't help, but is it the best part? I don't know. And the, the, the industry and the whole system is kind of skewed to, well, if I, can get my, if I can get two doctors to say that my client is so burnt out that they never have to work again, then I'm successful at my job. 
ah, it's tough. It's such a tough, it's one of those, it's, you know, it's the fringe of all of these competing things, right? Like what do I ultimately, how do I see my job as a financial planner? Is it to get the most amount of money for the least amount of work for my client? Is it to get, is it, is it, is that the job or is it, which is what I'm kind of alluding to, is it more than that? Is it to help them get back out there? You know, is, is, is there a chance that, you know, talking about uh, product development, is there a return to work bonus? You know what I mean? Like, if, if mm. I don't know how we can monetarily feel like the advisor has done their job to get the person back to work, but there's, we've got to change the, the, the levers, the motivation levers, otherwise the problem won't go away. And I think as advisors take on a bigger responsibility in clients' lives, and it's happening, happening all over the globe. Like I, I've been having these conversations with people all over the world. Advice is in the middle of a, it, it's, it's just, it's becoming a profession in front of our eyes in real time. And these kind of hard questions are a part of it. And I know there's going to be many advisors who are like, no, no, Clayton, you get them the cash, you sit them on the couch. And I respect it. I do because I can totally see how that's hitting some KPIs. However, if I adopt a greater responsibility for my client, then I've got to be kind of considering how I can get them back living a good life. And that is a very tricky thing, but I think it's something that we've got to figure out how to motivate both the advisor and the client to make happen. Yeah, look, I um, just as you were talking, I've had, I'm sort of reflecting myself on a number of, of times I've thought about this or, or, or conversed about this with someone. And, you know, if we just think quite broadly, and this is really thinking outside of the individual, but just thinking quite broadly, the experts tell us that the best place for someone with a mental illness is the workplace. It is a place where they have a purpose every day. Um, Even with COVID, you know, and I'm at home, I still get up in the morning and I get out of my home clothes and I get into something, I won't say a suit, but I get into (laughs) something that tells me, Maria, you're going to work, right? And I know that is my purpose for the next however many hours. Yeah. Right. So my, yeah, and I suppose the challenge for me um, in this role, uh, you know, working for a great brand like like Zurich, um, and 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 obviously from a from a one part proposition perspective is, but as an insurer, when I say that the best place for someone with a mental illness is the workplace where they have a purpose, they are supported, a good workplace, right? Not the workplace that necessarily caused them, if if it was caused by um, their mental illness was caused by the workplace, but a workplace where they feel supported. Yeah what they are contributing. Um, you think about that and you think about this person may or may not have a family. You know, how would their family feel about seeing them sitting on the couch every day, not getting the help that they need, okay? How would their family feel about seeing someone that had a purpose every day no longer have that purpose? It spirals. It absolutely spirals. And And, you know, whilst I'm not, I'm not a psychologist. I've read a lot and I'm very passionate about this space. And the one thing that we know is that every day a person 
stays at home is one less day that they've got that chance of actually getting better. Um, and, you know, the, the role of, you know, rehabilitation within an insurance business is actually to really centre, put the, put the client at the centre of that support and looking at what they actually need from a holistic care perspective um, and ensuring that, you know, we are supporting the mental well-being of, of, of our clients and we're not just saying, well, you know, here's your payout, off you go. Rehabilitation is there to actually support a return to wellness, um, not, not so much return to work right away, but getting someone to a point where they are well enough that they can make a, a, an informed decision about what it is they want to do um, with, with, with their work or, or whatever it, it is they want to do. What we're finding from our, and if, if Alicia was here, our rehabilitation and, and wellness manager, you know, her passion is providing customers with a seamless continual journey. It's actually about from the day that they're unwell, and telling the, you know, telling the employer that, you know, we need to support this person all the way through to their recovery. Um, and by doing this, you actually then reduce that burden on the individual that they may feel in terms of, you know, perhaps um, how their family perceives them, perhaps how they're feeling about themselves. They've actually got a purpose. They've got a purpose to get themselves better and to get into the rhythm of feeling like they're contributing again. Mm. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a tough conversation um i think for an advisor to sort of have with their client that is unwell as well it, and i'm not in any way saying this is easy but what i'm saying and i'm very passionate about is that just because someone has a mental illness it does not mean that they cannot contribute or work um and add value to a workplace you know it doesn't mean that and and part of what we're passionate about and as I said Alicia is passionate about is proving that court and tapping into the things that we know have worked for other clients um, and there's so many case studies so many things so many examples that I could share with you of where you know rehabilitation and, and having that as a service within a life insurer has made life-changing differences to individuals and given them the opportunities to do things that they never thought possible like you know, the lawyer that opened up a yoga studio and, you know, there's just so many different scenarios, right? Um, but my firm belief and my passion is really where can we all add more value? You know, we're seeing this global trend, um, particularly post-GFC, about, you know, the client is, is, is the centre of everything we're doing, you know. So where can we add more value? And you know, the, some, some suggestions, you know, as an advisor would be you know, these, you have a long-term relationship with this individual. You want to be able to, you know, support them and, and be that confidant and, you know, perhaps usher them if it feels like they're not quite going the right way. Is it the right thing for you to encourage that person to not get the help that they need um, and not get back to a level of, um, fulfillment you know they've got families they've got communities around them that can support support people in that and part of the advisor's role I think in terms of providing extra value 
in that relationship is giving that broader lens on, you know, there's a whole lot of research that says that you can go back to work when you, even if you have a mental illness, you can go back to work. You know, there's a lot of research out around that. You know, even if someone has a mental illness and they're, they're, they, they get their, their own medication for that mental illness, that doesn't stop that individual from going back to a workplace that can support them. Um, I think it, the, the conversation needs to be about, well, what greater value can I bring to this partnership between myself and my client rather than, oh, let's just, you know, go through and, and I'm not saying in any, I'm not saying this is what advisors do, but my personal view is that, you know, my relationship with my advisor is one of trust and it's one of, hey, Pete, you know, I need your advice on this. What do you reckon? Mm. Um, you know, he has been there every step of the way for my husband and I in terms of anything quite significant from a, an advice perspective that's happened in our lives, right? And I would hope that if, if touch on what I, you know, was one an unfortunate person that had to go and claim for something, that he would be giving me sound advice about, hey, you know, you love your work, you love what you do, let's help you get better and let's get you back to doing something that you love. You know, you don't want your kids seeing you sitting on the couch all day. You don't, you don't want that for your future. This isn't what your destiny is, you mm. know. That's what I would expect from him as my advisor. That, that, that would be a minimum expectation. He's done it with other things mm. where we've sort of thought, oh, you know, had a conversation with him couple of years ago um, where we were talking about school fees you know I've got three children um, saving for school fees and I said it's going to cost us a lot of money I think I should get rid of my trauma cover I don't think I need trauma what do I need trauma for I've got income protection I've got all these other things and he said no don't get rid no. of trauma <laughs> and he went through and started you know sharing some stats about some of his clients that were my age group, they'd just been diagnosed with different things. And, you know, he just sort of, I thought, okay, you're right, I won't. I would think that he would do the same thing in this scenario if I'm like, oh, I'm just going to sit on the couch every day. I don't yeah. want to, I'm not motivated to get better. Yeah. Marie, you've got a family. You've got, you know, you've got two degrees hanging on the wall. You can do something with, with your life. You know, you've got a life insurer that's got a really... Um, experienced and passionate rehab team that can support you. I would hope they're the conversations he'd be having with me. Yeah. Because that to me is giving me value. It's as his client, I'm getting more value than completing, just completing the form and pushing it in. Um, and that's what, you know, I would be looking for as a client. And that's yeah. what I think. Yeah, in, a, in, a, in a world where the client and the customer are king and they're looking for that, extra that five or ten percent extra from from relationships that's where you can add more value absolutely yeah um in, insurance companies are in such an interesting situation if you think about it because they've probably got more data more actual accurate data on the mental health side effects returning to work quality of life and yet there's an implicit sort of uh conflict uh, or we can't necessarily believe what's coming from the insurance company because they're motivated to get people back to work. That's just a natural, unavoidable uh, uh, situation, um, which, which to me just makes it really difficult. I, I think, um, it, is there much research that's done by, let's call it independent 
right? Because at the end of the day, um, I think advisors understand what, what you've just said is accurate. And, and yet, for, because of the fact that it's the insurance company that says this stuff, there's a, there's a disbelief. Um, what sort of data? Now, for example, during this series, we've gone through the ACE study, the uh, ACE, which is about early childhood trauma events. And that was actually conducted by an insurance company some time ago, maybe 20, 30 years ago over in the States. And it's been used by welfare workers to, to understand um, that early trauma creates long-term problems in life. But the thing I find really interesting about that is that social services uses results derived from an insurance company. And mm. it, 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 it doesn't surprise me because undoubtedly, because capitalism dictates that insurance companies are going to have the best data on this, um, so what, what other, I guess, which, and again, the reason why I make that point is because if other industries can trust insurance-related research, it boggles the mind that um, advisors would even consider that it's not accurate. So is there any, I guess you could say, independent research that hasn't been done by insurance companies that advisors can go look at? Because uh, while I sit here and listen to you, I personally believe what you just said and from the series that i've just gone through it sounds accurate and true how do we get past the 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 disbelief that comes with the inherent conflict is there any other existing independent research that people can look at i think there's 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 a lot of research out there about the the benefits of good work yeah i think there is a lot out there there's a number of um Know, different research papers. Um, I mentioned earlier the the combined KPMG FSC um, research paper around the, the BPS, um, um, the impact of, of psychosocial factors on on mental health and their implications in life insurance. I would highly recommend that research paper. Yeah, it we is actually, actually so, yeah, so, so I'll send you the link to that. Please, no yeah. issues. So, so what's the, the link? What, what's BPS? Um, bio. So when you're talking about BPS, you're talking about the bio like biological, um, the psycho psychosocial factors. So these are factors that are either linked to um, someone's bio, so, so biology, so how they um, yeah, their, their genetic makeup and, and 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 factors that they're exposed to. It could be linked to their particular workplace, or it could be linked to their social environment. So it's taking into account all the different things that are going on around this individual um, besides their, obviously their medical condition. Yeah. And what this paper does is it, it, it's, it's a lengthy research paper as, as I talked about, but it talks about how these factors have actually, um, it gives a nice, it actually gives a nice summary to start with around sort of what, what psycho biopsychosocial factors are, which is, which is good to, to understand the different types of, um, models that, that are adopted in terms of assessing mental health. Um, and then it talks about sort of the impact of mental illness in workplaces. And it's all based on literature. So there's actually a, a literature review that sits behind a lot of this research. So it talks about things like what the common mental health disorders are, being so depression, anxiety, substance um, abuse. It, it shares what the workplace and interpersonal psychosocial risks are. And that's 
well, what is it that could be happening in a workplace? As I talked about earlier in relation to, you know, high work demand, low reward, um, not enough support for individuals in the workplace, mm. um, high stress, low reward, you know, those sort of factors. It talks about the impact of the absence from work um, and why sort of return to work is, is valuable. Awesome. Um, so it's, a, it's quite a good research paper. Aside from, from that, there are a number of papers that have been done um, sort of by some of the community groups. But the one that I, the, I suppose the one thing that I, um, I like to mention is that, you know, there is actually a, a treaty that you can sign up to, um, which, which we're a signatory to, which is centred around the benefits of good work. And it's the Australasian Faculty of Occupational Environmental um, Medicines consensus statement. Wow. That we are, um, and it's on the health benefits of good work. So, um, That's, so that, that was a mouthful. Aust Australasian. So Australasian Faculty of Occupational and Environmental Medicines consensus statement on the health benefits of good work. Awesome. And that is independent. And that talks about, you know, work and yeah. why work is, is important and yeah. why, you know, um, we as humans need to have something that makes us feel fulfilled and makes us feel like we're contributing. And work is different things to different people. Um, you know, I'm not by any means saying that, um, a stay-at-home mum doesn't feel fulfilled. You know, they're, they're totally. busier than totally. <laughs> most yeah. of us, right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. They have, they have, there's a purpose there every day. Of course. You know? And that's what, that's what it's really a purposeful life. And this is an independent piece of research. I can send you the, um, the link to that as well, Clayton, that would, afterwards. That would be really helpful. If that would be valuable. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's, a, it's not an easy um, point to make when you are, you know, a life insurer, yeah. um, there's it's always a shame. that. It's just <clears throat> it's a shame, which is why all of the guests that I've had on this series have, have said the same thing, right? They've all said the same thing and they're all independent. And, um, and, it's, and insurance has all the best data on this, but then it just comes with an inherent conflict, which it's, it's just an, it's an unfortunate reality, I guess, that would go through everyone's mind. But personally, from what I've looked at, it seems, it seems legit. It does seem legit. And if you think about it, even from a rational point of view, get it, if your mate was stuck on the couch every day, it, it just, it's not, it's, it's not going to be the best outcome for them. I don't think it's highly sort of controversial, but I just, I, I guess I wanted to understand from the insurer's point of view, what kind of in, independent research. So thank you very much for, um, for touching on that. And then I guess the last thing would be, uh, there's something really specific that I've been considering during this um, uh, mental health series, and I could imagine this would be quite common. And so, ha and, and it's a tricky scenario. It's a tricky scenario. So let's let's imagine um, someone's getting bullied at work, and they don't enjoy the job, and they don't enjoy the people that they work with. Now, how? do we rehabilitate someone back to an environment that they don't 
enjoy. I, I would imagine that's kind of, if not for that, I, I think that would be the only environment where we wouldn't be able to solve the problem accurately first time around. What, what's the insurance uh, point of view when someone's in that position? Yeah, can I can I answer that with a case study? That's a real Please. life case study. Yeah. Um, and I'll just change a couple of little things around to protect the individual. But this is actually a um, a case study that we received an award for. So we received a, an insurance insurance award um, that was actually nominated by one of our clients via her advisor. So I'm going to share this case study with you, and that will kind of answer. I think, answer the question. It's always good to do it by example. So, you know, we, we had, um, uh, let's call her Emma. Uh, we had a lady called Emma who um, was actually in that very situation, in a very stressful workplace, um, which she wasn't enjoying. She liked the work that she did, but she just found the environment very, um, it, it wasn't supportive. Yeah. It was quite conducive to um, almost... Um, you know, being um, toxic. Mm. Uh, she did feel at times bullied um, and she had had a history of um, mental illness. So I think that in itself, you know, um, didn't help because she really needed a more supportive and, and nurturing environment. So she was someone, though, that really wanted to work, so really didn't want to stop working. Um, she came on claim because it, it just became too much for her and, and it, it brought back some of her historical um, prior mental, mental illness, um, anxiety, predominantly anxiety and, and, um, and, and stress-related. So she is a person that, you know, understood that that environment wasn't helpful for her but also knew that she needed the balance of work. So she was feeling conflicted. So when she came to us, we offer a, a nurse um, to complete claims forms for, for mental health claimants um, or, or, or a nurse or a, a healthcare professional. So that takes away, that took away the burden from her having to complete a form to tell us how she was feeling. And it's, you kind of think about forms at the best. And sometimes I don't know about yourself, Clayton, I don't like forms. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather have a conversation than fill out a form. Yeah. Um, that's just me, right? And I usually yeah. put, I usually put things in the wrong boxes and I've got to, you know, uh, anyway, that, no, that, yeah, I digress. But, you know, yeah. I'm one of those people that are like, what do yeah. you mean? My name needs to go on top, not on the bottom. Um, so, <laughs> so we've got, you know, we've got a nurse helping her complete the claim form. And we could see that, you know, that we could understand from that things like I want to work but I just can't. You, know, you kind of get things from that mm. that you don't get from a form. Mm. So, the nurse then referred her to a service that we have, which is centred on cognitive behaviour therapy. So it's really centred, it's, it's a health coaching service that is centred on trying to replace some of those um, unhelpful thoughts with helpful thoughts, unhelpful actions with helpful actions. You know, really quite, um, you know, trying to get into the psychology of, of, of what's going on, but doing it in a very... Um, unobtrusive it's phone based um and it's very very supportive so she went through um emma went through that as well and then after sort of talking to her and and you know our rehab team talking to her about her history of work workplaces that she'd been in and etc we identified that she really enjoyed 
where she had worked 10 years before and they knew of her history and they were very supportive of her and if she could get back there, she'd be really, really happy. Um, and to cut a long story short, that's actually what happened. Wow. You know, she went back two days a week, then she went back three days a week um, and then she sort of worked her way up to a, a level of work that she was comfortable. Wow. So I suppose what I'm saying is that the aim is to get people back to good work. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And whatever that good work looks like. And our rehab team has, you know, um, business coaching programs. They have, you know, get yourself, um, re, you know, re, retraining programs. They um, have, you know, back to work and, and, and wellness programs around that. There's so much there that can be leveraged. The aim isn't to put people back into a workplace that is going to then cause the same issues yeah. that they had before. But that doesn't mean that that workplace can't, adjust themselves and adjust, you know, the reporting lines or whatever it is to provide a supporting and nurturing environment because every workplace should be mentally healthy, Clayton. Every workplace should have that, you know, support for people that are unwell, just yeah. like they do for OH&S and like they do for other things. You know, this is a minimum requirement. So yeah. that's, my, that's my personal belief. But, yeah, absolutely. The person needs to be able to go back into an environment where they are supported. That's and that awesome. is part of our role as, as a life insurer, absolutely. Do you, do you find, that's really interesting. Do you, do you find advisors use the services as much as you would expect? I think it depends on the relationship they've got with their client. I yeah. think it really depends on where the client is at from their health perspective. Um, it, is, it depends on their motivations and, and how they're feeling about their overall health. Um, you know, we, we've got, you know, some, some pilot programs at the moment that um, in the group space that isn't an advice business, obviously, where it's really self, self-driven by the end member to, to partake. And um, some of the, the outcomes that we're seeing, they're extremely positive. But we also see that on the retail side. I think it just depends. Yeah, it depends on the relationship, what the expectation is between the advisor and obviously their client, how far they can influence or, or, or really encourage um, their client, um, but you know, it also depends on what the advisor sees as their role in that relationship as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it, there isn't really a simple answer to that. But my again, it's a hard message to deliver as a life insurer. Um, but my firm belief is that these tools and you know the the rehab teams, highly skilled rehab teams, are there. To support your client, yeah, they are there to support your client get to a place um, where they can, you know, feel well again, hopefully, or you know, be at a be at a point where their 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 illness is manageable, so that they can, you know, get back to a place that they're happy and fulfilled. And that, you know, what you talked about earlier, because good mental health is about being able to deal with life's ups and downs, feeling fulfilled, but bouncing back. It's having that bounce back, right? Absolutely. Because we all go through stuff. Clayton. Absolutely. We all go through stuff, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about mental health first aid and and I, I looked at some of your, you know, the lineup that you've had is phenomenal. You know, yeah. Some of the topics that you've touched on and talked about, wow, yeah. you know, yeah. 10 years ago, would we have been having this conversation? 
highly unlikely. Yeah, definitely um, not me. You know, <laughs> you know, 10 years ago, would, would a number of life insurers have had people in, in mental health roles? Highly unlikely. Yeah. Uh, but here we are, you know, with, with topics around financial advisors approaching their clients in tough times with empathy. Absolutely. Yeah. Empathy is part of understanding what it is that your client needs to, to, to get back to a place where they are fulfilled. Yeah. I mean, they are contributing. Um, I particularly liked um, Eric Priby's um, podcast around sharing personal experiences. Yeah. Um, and I know that we're coming to time, Clayton, but I want to quickly just share this, this story with you. Um, my last flight of the year was in early March um, up to Brisbane. And I was very fortunate to be presenting to an advice business. And I was really humbled by the fact that someone in that room stood up in front of their peers and shared with them that they had been in therapy for a very long time. And in fact, gave therapy gave them the balance that they needed to be able to, you know, live life every day and when they didn't have their therapy, most of their family actually identified. You haven't been to your therapist this month, have you? Wow. Um, and I suppose I'm sharing that story because what then happened was everyone clapped and it was almost one of those Dr. Phil moments, but it was really authentic, right? <laughs> and then people started to share their personal experiences about, oh, right, can you tell us a little bit more about that? And, you know, when we were afterwards, we were having a sausage roll and, and a beverage, you know, nothing beats that, right? Um, and mingling, you know, I was, I was, you know, I like watching people. I love watching people. I just watched people gravitate and just talk to this individual and just talk and just, you know, share. And I just thought that is the power of connection. Yeah. That is the power of saying, I've shared something with you. You now have permission to share something personal with me you know you, you kind of you know when you're in a meeting and you think oh, I don't know if I want to say that no one else is talking and then someone says you go oh, you know I'll say it now that's fine <laughs> um I generally don't feel like that but you know um years ago I did but you know it's that kind of you, know, you now have permission to to share um and and that in itself then contributes quite positively to rapport you know and when you have rapport with your clients which you had Dr. Anne um, Dadich talk about that as well. Rapport is that connection. It's that connection I've got with my advisor, Pete. Mm. You, know, like, you know, I know he's got my best interests at heart. I know when I'm saying something stupid like cancel my trauma, he's saying, oh, I'm not canceling your trauma and this is why. Yep. You know, and that is rapport. And, when, you know, and I hope, I hope this never happens, but I hope if I ever was unwell, and had dark days where I thought I'm never going to go back to my old self, he would help me pull through that. That is what I'm hoping for. Um, and that is where the power of relationships, the power of connection that advisors have with their clients, that is where you can do some real good with that. Um, and I really do encourage advisors to dig deep in, yeah. in that space and, and yeah. you know, add greater value. It's, yeah. And, you know, when, when you add value, that relationship is irreplaceable. My Absolutely. Is, my yeah. advisor, irreplaceable. And from an advisor's point of view, I mean, it just makes so much sense to get a client up and healthy again because realistically a successful advisor means we have happy and healthy clients. And, and obviously it's not, their client, it's not the advisor's responsibility to make sure that, that none of their clients ever have a mental health problem. 
But I, it, it certainly is the responsibility of the advisor to overall to get as many clients to a, to, a, to a better position than they would have been without them. So, I mean, insurance is a tool if things go awry. But, yeah, I, I think advisors taking on a bigger responsibility to ensure we don't even need it is, um, is the future. And so, um, look, Maria, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate you taking your time to uh, to give this series the wrap up that it deserves. It's a very um, intense topic, and I think talking about it makes things easier. It, it it's been at different points about advisor health. It's been at some points the health of the society, and it certainly touched on um, the health of our clients. So uh, it's been a, a great uh, tour of podcasts that um that it's, it's been awesome to work with uh, Zurich and One Path on this. So thank you so much for coming up to wrap it all up. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for the opportunity. All the best, everyone. <laughs>